sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to episode 51 of You Don't Have to Yell, the second to last episode in the first year of YDHTY's existence. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and today I have a very special guest. Now, we all have that friend from college or high school who we keep in touch with on social media who developed a really strong opinion on politics sometime around, oh, I don't know, November of 2016-ish. And they make it known almost daily. Well, Dan Sally is no exception. And it was part of the reason I started this podcast. Now, when I first started working on this, before I even had a name for it, I interviewed people with a bunch of different perspectives. And this next guest was one of the original folks I interviewed. John, which is his nom de guerre today, was an old college buddy of mine who was relatively unopinionated on politics when I knew him. And this was back when I was a diehard Republican. Still a little to the left of Stephen Miller, but definitely diehard for the time. And after we graduated, he became more politically aware and moved to the right as the years went on and started becoming really vocal on social media. My goal when I interviewed him the first time was to understand his perspective on things. And when I learned about his life, it became really clear why he thought the way he did. I asked him to come back on the show and do the same exact interview all over again so I didn't have to subject you all to the seas of ahs and ums I spilled out in my original interview. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts, but to tee this up for you, as I always say, people seem crazy until you bother to talk to them. So I'm in Florida right now. You're in Arizona. It is July 12th. So right now, well, if nothing changes between now and when this goes live, um, everyone will be hearing stories about the hell on earth that are our respective locations. So, you know, I, I have to start off asking kind of what's the situation in Arizona from, from your point of view? Um, well, uh, from my point of view, <laughs> um, I, I think that we keep hearing on the news about how we have all these cases, 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 cases. And it's true because we've been testing, 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 but the, the deaths are going down. The, the ICU beds are filling up, but um, we can't get straight numbers if they're COVID patients. Um, And the only thing that I have heard about that's actually a study or someone's looked into it was in Texas where they're finding that only 15% of the ICU beds are COVID patients. The 85% are actually people who have been sick prior to COVID or over these last couple of months, and it's just gotten to a breaking point. And once everything started lifting, they all started rushing to hospitals. So our ICU beds are filled, but they don't talk about who's filling them. They don't talk about deaths here at all. They just talk about cases. So um, I'm... I'm of the opinion that we've got lots and lots of cases because we're doing tons of testing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So coming down here, 
now obviously we we had a really bad spike in in Boston earlier in the year uh and I had a couple of friends who were working in the hospitals where covid patients were being treated so you know I had firsthand accounts of the the state of affairs and how bad it was um the interesting thing is when I was coming down here what I found, and I, I want to get to this a little later on in our conversation, but you know what I found is it's very, very difficult to get reliable, non-sensationalized, non-tainted information on the subject. And the when when I try to figure out what the state of affairs was in Florida, you know, we either had people who, or I should say, outlets that wanted to either support Governor DeSantis or knock down Governor DeSantis, depending on the political bent of what I was reading. So it became very, very difficult to understand what's this, what is the problem? What is the situation? What's the state of affairs? And so I really rested on just ICU bed availability, which is fairly easy to get. And and from what I've seen, the ICUs have definitely gotten more full here, even in the time I've been here. You know, the county I'm staying in went from, I think, somewhere around 30 ICU beds to four in the course of a week. So that's dramatic. It's, it's not just like car crashes or like, you know, people falling off ladders. You know, I mean, it's like it, it, something's going on. Um, but the, you know, as I started to dig into it a little more, you know, the interesting thing I saw is if you look at Texas, you look at Florida, um, you look at Arizona, um, during when we were having our spike in mass in March and April, and when the story was quite literally the, the, the pandemic, when it revolved around that, um, the cases in, you know, your neck of the woods here in Florida were fairly low, you know, the, right. I mean, the, the spike was not big. And I, I mean, no, I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, the one thing I noticed is right around the time that you would have started turning your air conditioning on and the folks here would have started turning their air conditioning on and staying indoors, um, cases started to spike again or cases started to spike in those specific regions. And so in my mind, if I'm kind of looking at that, what I'm thinking to myself is number one, uh, if you have a lot of people in enclosed environments that aren't being ventilated, either because it's too cold outside as it was in Boston, so you're keeping your windows shut, or in this case, it's too hot outside as it is in Florida, Arizona, and Texas, so again, you're keeping your windows shut, um, you're going to have a higher likelihood of transmission. That's number one. Um, I think number two, and something I'd like your opinion on, uh, is it almost seems as if maybe there's a little bit of COVID fatigue going on nationwide. And for a state like Massachusetts, where we've kind of gotten over the bad part, that's okay. But if you, if it hasn't hit you yet, it's just hitting you now. It's almost kind of the worst combination of factors. And I know I just kind of filibustered there, but do you feel like, do you feel like a lot of the, a lot of the focus on the state of affairs, specifically in the Northeast, when things weren't that bad and in, in your neck of the woods, do you think that had an effect on people's reactions now and maybe why folks are, are, are maybe a little leerier of, of the, the, the stories they're hearing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a combination of things that are affecting people's perceptions and their realities. Um, I mean, this, this 
the coronavirus, regardless of what it actually is, has been super hyper politicized, yeah, um, top to bottom. And so, yeah. you, like you said, you can't really get clean, clear data. So you don't know what to believe. Even the the folks that everybody has said to believe have flip-flopped multiple times, right? The CDC has told us you should do this. Now don't do that. The WHO says you should do this. Now don't do that. And then they go back and say, oh no, actually you should, right? So it's really hard to get exact data. On top of it, you've got a lot of authoritarian sort of um, governors that are basically saying, yeah, no, you can't do this anymore. You can't do that. You can't do this. Your little mom and pop shop can't be open. Oh, but Home Depot can, right? And people are thinking, well, wait a second. Why is my little mom and pop shop, I can't provide for my family, but these big mm-hmm. companies can? Well, that's crap. Then to make matters worse, you've got these, these riots that happen, and they're literally saying it's okay to riot, but you can't go to church, Right, like they'll they'll list the guidelines and they'll say you can go out and protest and riot, that's fine, but you can't go to church. And people are like, this is total bullshit. So it's all of those factors that are playing into it, and I think people are tired of it. On top of it, if you look at the numbers, I mean, we're not even we're like a little bit worse than the flu, right? A really bad flu season. Um, we know that there's about a twenty five percent error rate on the, the uh, reporting of COVID. So if you look at that 125,000, it's really about 100,000 people who, who've died of COVID. And the other thing is too, is the flu season resets. COVID doesn't reset. We just keep adding it up. So when should we have reset, right? So the season just keeps going and going and the numbers keep growing and growing. So if you really want to kind of line it up with the seasonal flu. We're about 80,000, right? Mm, yeah. I'd say the, the only thing I'd, I'd push you on there is again, just looking at Massachusetts and looking at what happened there. Um, we've never had a flu season where hospitals were filled. Like we've never, we've never had a flu season where hospitals were filled and, and to, to add to that, we've never had a flu season where hospitals were filled and everybody was avoiding large crowds. Like everybody was avoid. Everybody was taking precautions to ensure they didn't get the flu effectively. Right, but we're, we've learned even since then, though, that the whole lockdown thing actually has increased people's transmission. Right, that, that sixty to seventy percent of the cases in New York were all from people who were locked down. They were they were basically transmitting it to everybody in their family and all the people they were locked down with, and so. You know, the, the, the numbers difference between places and counties and locations that locked down and ones that didn't is negligible. So the whole lockdown was not really, I mean, it didn't really do a whole lot. On top of it, you have a place like New York. One of the main reasons why there were so many deaths there is because they sent COVID patients to the places that had the most vulnerable people, to old folks' homes. And those people passed it along to one, one another. 60% of those deaths were from that alone. So, I, I mean, I, I think there's a ton of factors that are involved in all this. And I think if you were to really parse all this out, I mean, it certainly seems more contagious than the, the flu. But we did a lot of stupid things. Sending 
COVID patients to old folks' homes who we know are the most susceptible to this was the dumbest thing that we could have possibly done. And it happened in states all over the country. And we know that that was a huge portion of the deaths in this country were because of that. So, you know, I, I, I said this at the very beginning. I didn't think this was going to be more than a really bad flu season. And it turns out that it's, it's a bit worse, but it was because of some of the stupid mistakes, I think, that, uh, that we've made since, since then. I think if we know what we know now, then it would be, this would be the flu. We wouldn't be thinking anything of it. So we have we typically this is a huge disadvantage for this show because in 2020, you know, typically there's a lag time of one to two weeks before an episode tapes, sometimes longer, but but usually about one to two weeks before an episode tapes and goes on. It goes live, excuse me. And typically that's the worst thing that can happen because it just seems like every day there is some new, more terrible piece of news hitting our doorstep. Uh, and it makes whatever I had planned on talking about somewhat dated, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in this, in this specific case, we actually, this is going to work in our favor. Cause like I, I'm telling folks now it's the 12th. Um, this is going to be live on the 23rd. So we've got almost two weeks. Um, I'm going to be packing up, assuming the situation here doesn't get so hairy. I have to leave sooner. I'm going to be packing up and heading back to Boston on the 25th. Um, you're going to obviously be in Arizona. What do you think the situation is in two weeks? Well, I, like I said, I, 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 we, if we continue to test at record levels, we're going to continue finding more and more cases, which, which is a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at the beginning of this, there, they were talking about a five to 10% death rate. Because mm-hmm. all the people that we were testing were the people who had it, and they were all dying. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they suspected at the beginning that this was widespread. And the doctors that said that were correct. This virus is widespread. And many, 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 many people have it, have had it, and have recovered, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the death rate is driving down to a normal like flu-style seasonal flu style death rates for children. Yeah. It's actually less. It's so close to zero that it's, it's almost zero. It, the seasonal flu is far more deadly based on current numbers than, than uh, COVID-19 is for children. I think there's 26 or 29 children in the whole country that have died from COVID-19. Yeah. And that is not the case with seasonal flu. So, um, I think that it's going to cases are going to continue to go up. Young people are the ones that are spreading it, according to Dr. Fauci, and they're going to continue to do that. And we are all going to get it at some point, just like we get the regular flu. But hopefully, what happens is each generation of this, the the flu, the virus loses. My understanding is it loses some of its, you know, um, virility, if you will. And um, by the time we get it. Hopefully it'll be just like having a bad flu and, and that'll, that'll be a good thing. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking and I'm hoping that it, it starts dwindling a bit, um, or at least we start reporting because the real thing is the deaths, right? I mean, getting it, I don't think anybody, we weren't trying to prevent people from getting it. It wasn't about the flattening the curve wasn't about preventing. It was about 
just leveling it out so that we didn't overwhelm the hospitals. Yeah. The only way we can prevent ourselves from getting it is with a vaccine or building up a herd immunity. Well, we can't build up a herd immunity if no one's getting it. So that piece is kind of taking care of itself. The vaccine, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that, whether we'll ever get one or not. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to continue to go. What I'm hoping though, is that it doesn't completely tank the economy more than it already is because honestly that's my bigger worry. Yeah. I go to bed every night thinking, you know, how, you know, am I going to have a job next week? Uh, mm-hmm. the week after that. And that's a bigger concern to me right now. Yeah. Before we get into that though, I want to, you know, I want to kind of tee up the, the, the next section of this, which is, you know, you and I spoke when I was first developing this podcast. So you were one of the first six people I spoke with. I had a group of people, um, all who had different perspectives and I just wanted to figure out what I was doing, you know? And so you and I spoke for like three hours, I think it was. When I went back to edit those three hours of, uh, of audio, I think the thing that I found most interesting and the thing I found most compelling was how you arrived to where you are. And, and tell me if I'm being a little too extreme here, but for the folks listening, I think it's fair to say that you and I, we're going to disagree on the greater percentage of policy positions. Would you agree on that? Or, or, are you, or, or do you think I'm being a little too extreme there? It, it's, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, you and I disagree more than we agree. Definitely. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, is in learning about your upbringing, learning about, you know, post-college, going out into the workforce and all that, a lot of what you thought or a lot of how you got to where you were made perfect sense. And one of the things I've been driving at for the last year as I've been doing this, and part of the reason I actually want to end end the year with you, um, was that if you really take the time to understand people and you really take the time to understand kind of how they got to where they are, the reason that they think and vote the way they do isn't quite as crazy as you think it might be. Um, And so if you don't mind, like I'd love to kind of go through that over again, you know, for the folks listening, because I remember you know, and again, to share a little background with the listeners here, you know, John and I, John is an alias. John and I went to, went to, uh, college together. Um, <laughs> he cut my hair once. Um, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. No? Yeah. I, I, yeah. T- I but, tell my family that all the time. I was, the, uh, <laughs> I was the barber at college. Yeah. Yeah. You guys yeah, paid me I, in beers. That was, it was great. It was great. The best part was so, so I can't remember at what point I decided to let you shave it. Um, but I have, you know, my hair is pretty thick. And so I remember you shaved it and I had like sideburns at the time. And I remember I like, I looked like curious George after it, you know, cause I had this like sort of coconut, like fuzz <laughs> on my head, but, um, yeah. And I, you know, I was ultra political back in college. I was, I was, ins- I, I was insanely opinionated politically. Um, you weren't though, as no. I remember, right? Like you no. weren't. Yeah. And you weren't like when you were growing up, you weren't really brought up in a political household, correct? Um, yeah, not so much. I mean, I, I heard things from my father, you know, um, I knew which direction he leaned for sure. I know yeah. he loved Reagan. Um, yeah. um, and mainly because his business, he was in the steel business and he, his business would thrive 
um, or actually was thriving when um, Reagan was in office. Was there anything specific about Reagan's policies that that helped his business out or? Um, I remember, I don't remember the specific policy, but I remember he did something that brought some of the steel manufacturing and the, the steel plants back to the U S or something along those lines. And, yeah. and GM, I remember him telling me something about GM, you know, was starting to do this. And because of that, it, you know, business was really good. And growing up, you know, up until five years old, my father was very successful in the steel business. Um, we lived in one of the best neighborhoods, you know, in town, we had a big giant house. He had two Corvettes. Um, uh, then my parents got divorced and it was like, we were instantly in the poor house. Yeah. My, my entire life was practically at the point of poverty. Um, except this period of time when Reagan was in office and my dad, he owned his own, uh, steel. He was selling steel. Mm-hmm. He was super successful and, and we, it was like one of the best times growing up. So there's that period during the Reagan era where things were good. And then it kind of went down after that. Cause I remember we had a pretty bad recession too. Once Reagan left, I remember on a recording you describe and tell me if I'm doing this, if I'm explaining this wrong, I remember you said to me, you go, I don't know if we were the richer side of poor or the poorer side of middle class, I think was the way you put it when I was, when we, when we spoke last, does that kind of sum up where you were after the? No, I mean, we lived in a nice neighborhood, but we, we didn't have two pennies to rub together. I honestly don't know how my dad did it. I think I told you the story that I would come home sometimes after school. And the only thing that was in the refrigerator was cottage cheese um, and maybe SpaghettiOs. Right. And so there were plenty of nights I come home and I was eating cottage cheese and SpaghettiOs and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, but you were in like a fairly like middle-class neighborhood then. So middle-class school, other kids with sort of middle-class lifestyles. Is that oh, right? I, I remember what you said. No, I grew up kind of in a rich area. Yeah. Um, you, you know, not, I wouldn't say grew up. Um, the, we lived in two places growing up. The, the first yeah. place that I lived in was on the outskirts of a nice area. And it, okay. it, we, we rented from a, a guy that lived down the street from us. And I, I lived right behind like an in and out Mart or, a you know, a get and go or whatever, you know, one of those things. Um, and so yeah. it was kind of a dump, but it was in sort of a nicer area. The second place that we lived was certainly, um, I'd say middle-class or to the upper and the school was like, you know, they, it was like the, the, the snotty public school. So I mm-hmm. went to like a nice place, but we had nothing. What was that like for you? Like, how did you keep up and, you know, how did you get by in that environment? Well, I, you know, I just, I became friends with everybody. Um, you know, do, do you, I know one uses this word today, burnouts. Do you remember the word burnout? Oh yeah. Okay. So a burnout back then was somebody who smoked and drank and maybe smoked you know, pot or something like yeah. that. I was friends with those folks, but I was also mm-hmm. friends with the jocks. I was friends yeah. with the really smart kids. I was friends. I had a couple gay friends. So gay, being gay back then was like, I mean, it was a, a sin, right? Nobody yeah. was openly gay. And I had two gay friends. And one of the kids lived down the street from me and I was friends with him before he came out. And 
So it was hard for, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, I hate him now. I've never been that guy. I've never been, oh, well, now that you've just said you're this, I suddenly hate you. I liked you Mm -hmm. before. I like you after, right? It's, it's, so, you know, I was friends with him. Um, So I had friends all around. Um, You know, there were things like, uh, you know, I started working when I was 15, um, I started anything that I wanted. I paid for myself, you know, Christmases, birthdays, all that stuff would go by and there would be nothing. Um, and it's cause my dad just didn't have any money and I, I would buy the things that I want. I knew if, if I wanted it, I'd have to earn money to go get it. Yeah. And so that was just kind of how it was. And, you know, I, I tried as my hardest to kind of keep up with the Joneses. Like, you know, all the kids are wearing polo to school I was wearing, you know, the, the 75% clearance from TJ Maxx polo. (laughs) Yeah. And so now when we were in college together, then were you, you were taking out loans and just hustling to pay for it all yourself. Is that what happened or? Well, most of my college money was grants. So, um, I got grants for my grades and then, Mm -hmm. um, the rest was loans and my, my, um, I had a family member, a relative that would pay for my books. Mm-hmm. And, and of course I worked, I had two jobs while I was there. And so, you know, that was cause I wasn't on the meal plan or anything. So I had to, you know, I, I mean, I was during the week, but like on the weekends, you know, if I wanted to eat, basically I, I needed money. So that yeah. was my, my work. There was like a point where you just had enough of Illinois and you decided to move to Arizona. And what was like, what was the catalyst there? Or what, yeah, it was it was the whole um, economy breakdown and what was that twenty seven, uh, twenty nine, something like that. I can't remember which year, but mm-hmm. I kind of foresaw. Well, I didn't foresee anything um, mm-hmm. as everything was crashing around us. We had already started to lighten all of our load, all of our debt, and I was working at a, um, uh, this company where it was just a few of us. And I was working around some really smart guys. And, and one of the guys was, uh, we used to get these really big bonuses. We didn't get raises, but we got these big giant bonuses. And he used to take his bonus every year and he'd drop it on his house. So by the time, like, I mean, this was years and years ago, he was at the time, he was like my age. He didn't have a house payment. His house was paid off because he was just dumping these big giant bonuses on his house. And so he had all this financial freedom. So we had been working on that, not quite to that extreme, but, but offloading our debt, getting rid of the expensive cars, getting, we lived in this hands down, probably the richest area in, in Illinois and in one of the nicest towns in a super expensive house. Um, my wife and I were both working. We had no kids. We both had, you know, executive level jobs, making tons of money with no commitments and no, you know, no dependence. And so we started lightening our load. Then my wife decided she wanted to have kids. And, um, you know, we, we gave that a spin. Uh, we had kids. And when I had kids, they, they had this effect on me that, you know, I just didn't, one, I didn't want someone else raising my kids. So I wanted one of us to at least raise our kid. And I, um, I knew we couldn't do it in Illinois just because we couldn't, 
live where we wanted to. And so we were already slimming our life. Um, the economy started going down. Our, 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 our big last step was selling the house. And um, we just, in a month, we packed up our everything. We sold our house and we drove across the country and uh, moved. Yeah. And so our, the move to Arizona was really kind of a cost of living issue then or a cost of living move. Is that fair? It, it was that coupled with we, we wanted one of us to stay home with our kids. And, yeah. and to do that, we needed to slim our lifestyle even more. We had that happen in at the same time. So uh, we were we had two kids at the time, and number three was on the way, and we were already doing the math and realizing that we couldn't we we couldn't afford three kids in daycare, and you know, and have like it, the math wouldn't have worked out. One yeah. of us effectively would be working to pay for daycare, and so we were already trying to figure that out, and then. The it was New Year's Eve, two thousand eight. My wife was five months pregnant and got laid off, and um, and this is, I mean, this story is really messed up because she, so she and I were both working together. We were the number one and two salespeople in our company, and she gets called in the day before a long weekend and gets told she's let go. And then another guy who hadn't hit his number all year got her, got her accounts and I couldn't do anything because it was the middle of the worst recession we had seen in a lifetime. Uh, I was the sole provider for benefits at the time. Uh, and I had no choice. I had to show up and work, you know, what was I going to do? Right. You had to Um, grit your teeth. Dude, for a year. I mean, yeah, I had to, for a, for a year, uh, I had to do that. And there was just, what am I going to do? There's nothing, you know, they, they, there's, there's nothing, um, there's nothing I could possibly do other than just sit through it. Um, but you, so you went down, you went down in the middle of this downturn and you actually, you, did you start your own business right away or was that something that happened after? That was after, um, I, I was fairly confident just because of my skills that I was going to be able to get a job anywhere I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody was hiring. So it doesn't yeah. matter how good you are when no one's hiring, you can't get a job. So I continued to work where I was and I was, it was in Illinois. So I was commuting every week um, from oh. Arizona to Illinois. Okay. So you were flying back and forth. Is that what yeah. you're doing? Yeah. I did that for, for five years. Whoa. Five, geez. All right. So yeah, no remote work back then. No, no. That was at a time where, um, you know, it was even hooking like a a work laptop to a a non-work Wi-Fi was completely out of the question. I mean, it was stupid. Um, Even though I could have done my job remotely, nobody, nobody would have allowed it. So you do that whole commute and then eventually did you, yeah, well, obviously the economy was getting better. So I guess at that point, then you had the option to kind of go out on your own. Is that right? Or am I, yeah. am I messing up the story? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was really my kids. I mean, I was spending more time away from them than I was with them and I didn't have a choice 
And then as soon as I had a choice, I made that choice. And, and so I started my own business. Uh, I basically cut my salary in half or a third. Um, and we were pinching pennies again. <laughs> so, but I, you know, because we had no, no major debt other than our house, um, you know, we we're still living like a really nice lifestyle. You know, of course, everyone that we live around has dual incomes and, you know, they live in these big fancy houses and, um, you know, I, I, I was okay with that because I was a much, much happier person um, than when I was making tons of money being away from my family. Hey there. Hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope it's becoming clear how John developed his political philosophy. And what's also going to become clear later in the episode, if it hasn't already, is that he actually doesn't want to fight about politics, but our current two-party framework leaves little choice. And you listen to YDHTY because you know we can do better than what our two major parties are giving us. And we need to bring people like you into the conversation to make change happen. So you can help in three ways. Number one, right now, on whatever device you're listening to, share YDHTY with everybody you know, anyone you think this would resonate with. Number two, if you can write a review of YDHTY, positive, preferred, something about my hair would be great. Uh, I do a lot of work on it. It doesn't always come off on the, uh, on the audio, uh, but that would be awesome as well. Uh, and number three, you can subscribe to YDHTY on Facebook and Twitter to share content from the site with your friends, acquaintances, and people like today's guest who are probably equally tired of the state of affairs and would love a place to find common ground. As always, I appreciate you listening and your support. And now, back to the show. And so I guess kind of to, you know, recap everything we've talked about so far. So you grow up, you know, your dad kind of struggles, uh, you know, you kind of struggle as a result, but sounds like you, you know, you sort of spent your youth you know, hustling, providing for yourself, you get your way through, you know, you, you work your way through school, you graduate early, start to make a living. So now here you are, you're in Arizona. At what point did you start to become like political in, in all that process? At what point did you start to become like politically aware or politically opinionated? September 11th, 2001. I remember just watching it and I was enraged. I mean, I was I was probably more angry than I've ever been about anything. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember calling a buddy of mine who was in the Marines and I'm like, what, what can I do? You know, I mean, I, I can't, I, I'm not, you know, physically capable of like signing up and being a grunt, but there's gotta be a way that the government can use my skills to get bad guys. I didn't end up um, working for the government, but I just started, paying attention like okay how did we get here what actually happened you know what led to this um and that's when i um started really getting into it and i remember somebody at work you know at a lunch table saying oh well this this is all george bush's fault and Mm -hmm. i'm thinking to myself well wait a second you mean it's his fault like 
he was the project manager and the project fails and it's his fault or it's literally like because of him, it, it failed. And they're like, no, because of him, it failed. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Come on. <laughs> like, yeah. It, it's more like he's the project manager and there was the project failed and therefore you blame him. Yeah. I remember getting into a conversation with someone and I was living in San Francisco at the time, which they had signs that said, stop the bombing the day, like it was September, it was September 12th. And they had signs that said, stop the bombing. We hadn't even like launched an aircraft carrier yet. Uh, But I remember talking with one guy uh, about what we should do. And at the time I was pretty hawkish. You know, I was, I was pretty Republican up until, yeah, it was actually the Bush era. I started uh, the W Bush W era. I started to drift from the party, but uh, I remember talking to this guy and his thing was like, well, we shouldn't start a war because I'm afraid we might escalate it. And I was like, how are you going to escalate it any more than it already is? Like they just flew two planes <laughs> into a couple skyscrapers. Like that's pretty bad. I, I mean, at that time, were you politically aligned or were you still trying to figure it all out? Well, I mean, I, so here, here's, I, I, first of all, I don't, I don't like Republicans. I think, um, I like I like Democrats the least, and mm-hmm. then I like Republicans right at less, like right after that, right? So yeah. um, it's not like I have any love for them. But I tell you yeah. what I do like is I like limited government. Republicans are supposed to be for limited government. That should be what they stand for. They haven't in decades. So. There really is, like, when you're voting and when the people we have been voting for have been Democrats or Democrat lights, in my opinion. They're, everybody's for big government. It's how big is the question. So I've always believed in small government and individual um, responsibility, individual um, rights, things of that nature. So I gravitate towards that side. Um you know, I was thinking about this the other day. If, if I, will I ever vote for a Democrat? I, I can't ever imagine it because they are so far from that. They, they didn't used to be, but they are so polar opposite of that, that mm. I can't ever foresee me voting for a Democrat. But I would if like I liked I liked Tulsi Gabbard. I didn't agree with her on a bunch of stuff, but I liked her. I thought she was fairly reasonable. Um, and I could see somebody like that potentially winning someone like me over. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, the, the, with the people that are in the, you know, kind of running the Democrat party now, I, I just, they're, if you were to make the opposite of me, that person would vote for them. Yeah. Yeah. So it- it sounds like you're not necessarily pro Republican in so much as you are anti-democrat right now well i right now is a totally separate thing i think we're in a very 100 percent unique space and time um i would say up until donald trump yes that was the point but now with donald trump i'm one million percent for him and and mainly because all of the stuff that's happening these were mm-hmm. all things that were kind of 
brewing and bubbling and happening Mm -hmm. behind the scenes that no one knew about. Yeah. And because, because he's kind of come up through all of this, we're now seeing all of the really ugliness that goes on behind the scenes and it's being exposed. And I had somebody say to me a couple, maybe a week or two ago, like, you know, I, I, there's part of me that wishes he never would have been elected. And I'm like, you know, I don't because we never would have known all this stuff. Like all of the corruption and the lies and the disdain for the American people that politicians have, we would have just been status quo. So I am a million percent for Donald Trump. If for the only fact to all of these bad actors out there and every all these crying, whiny rioters, you know, destroying everything, like it's it's the reason why we don't negotiate with terrorists. Because when you do, you get more terrorism. So if he loses. This all this will do is send a message to all of these people who've had to, had all this really bad behavior for the last three years. Do more of it because it works, and I, that I can't. I, I think it's untenable. I, I don't think our country can survive going the route that it has been going. Yeah, I want to. I want to get back to that before we get to that though. So prior to Trump, then. Were you casting your ballot generally Republican for the most part? Yes. Um, and um, I would say over the last couple of elections, I would do my homework. I would look and I would research the candidates. I'd research. I'd watch videos. I'd look at their web pages. I'd, I'd um, you know, research where they stood on issues and, yeah. um, you know, pick the, the the people that I that I thought would be best for me and my family. And for the most part, that was always Republicans. There were some, you know, in none of the major positions, but like some of the local positions, I'd vote Democrat if I thought, you know, they were doing, if things were going all right, the way they were. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's changed. Yeah. And so it, it's similar, you know, with, with me, I was up until, I think the, actually the first Democrat I voted for was Hillary Clinton. And oddly enough, I was for president at least. And I was never a fan of the Clintons. Not once, like never I was. And prior to that, I, uh, the only Democrats I ever voted for was my local representative. And that's just because in Massachusetts, you don't have an option. So, and I genuinely like the guy. Um, I like both of them actually. Um, but you know, so I know you mentioned sort of, Trump's come in and, and, and tell me if I'm phrasing this wrong, but in your mind, cause I know when we spoke last, you said Trump wasn't your, your first choice in the beginning, but it, it sounds to me like really your opinion of Trump is, is more that he in a lot of ways is maybe like a catalyst for change or he's, there's, there, there's, there's a lot of corruption uh, and a lot of bad actors, as you said, in Washington, and he being the outsider and he being a bit brash and unconventional is the most likely solution to that problem. Is that am I paraphrasing that okay? Does that kind of sum up how you feel, or am I am I off base there? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of nuance in there. There's a yeah. whole lot of other little things. Um, you know, when you really look deep 
at it mm-hmm. that that makes sense. But but yeah, I mean, I would say at a, at a high level, um, it, he wasn't my guy at all. Yeah. I told everyone in the primaries to vote to not vote for him because he's he had been a Democrat his whole life. I mean, he yeah. he donated to Hillary. He donated to Democrats. He, he was a Democrat. It was pretty much common knowledge. And then it was like, okay, we want this Democrat. H- how conservative can he be? As a dem- as a Democrat now running as a Republican, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, he was not he was not my guy at all. Yeah, and and prior to that too, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but obviously you mentioned sort of September 11th was when you really got politically active. Was your voting mainly sort of foreign policy based then? Like, was that your big concern at the time, or was there sort of economic stuff in there and and whatnot that really kind of guided your decisions? No, it was, um, it wasn't foreign policy at all, uh, okay. to be honest with you. Yeah. I think it was, was Reagan that, that used this quote. Um, I, I'm, and I'm not going to get it right, but basically, um, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Yeah. And I remember my brother saying that, I remember my father saying that, and that's kind of a bar that I've always used. And, yeah. um, and generally, I've, my life and my lifestyle has increased under, um, Republican leadership and it's gone down under Democrat leadership. And so, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of where I really, it's, it's the economy for me. It's always been the economy. Yeah. What do you, so what happened during the Obama years for you? What was that like? Well, first of all, I, there, I just didn't think he was, he had a shot of winning at all because, you know, I lived in Illinois and he was a nobody in Illinois. Um, he, he, in fact, if you look at his Senate record, he barely showed up and, and and his credentials were like weak as hell. And so I'm thinking there's no way. Mm -hmm. And so I was shocked when he won, but, um, I also understand our system of government and, the executive branch is just a piece. It's yeah. not, a, he's not a king. He doesn't mm-hmm. rule. Um, but what we did end up seeing was like a, an ex, you know, an exponential increase in executive orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every president has pretty much followed that. They, 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 the, the, the current president exponentially creates more executive rules than the previous one. Yeah. And so on and so forth. And I, and I think Donald, I haven't looked, but I think Trump is basically probably on par, if not. Yeah. More, it's right? one of the, yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I don't, and you know, I've made no secret on, on this podcast or with you, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Trump. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't really panic too much because out of his entire presidency, they're the, biggest piece of legislation has been the tax overhaul. Everything else has been executive orders. And if the Obama years proved one thing, it's that an executive order is good until the next guy gets into office. And then right. after that, you know, and so it's pretty easy to unwind, but your feeling was with Obama, the, um, it was just sort of, there was just more executive overreach than there had been in years prior. Is that what I'm hearing or? Yeah, there was that. And of course, the healthcare, right? I mean, the healthcare was a massive expansion of, of government control. Yeah. Um, the way it was passed, the things that we were told, you know, we, I mean, I knew from the beginning, the math didn't add up. I mean, we, mm-hmm. it was plain as day. Yeah. Um, 
and I saw my premiums increase 400% per year. Um, and it was ultimately the cause of me having to shut my business down because I could not raise my rates and my insurance was killing me. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think at the final, I was paying something like $30,000 out of pocket before insurance picked anything up. Um, so it, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, I think my premiums alone were like 15 grand. We had a $10,000 deductible. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, until we met that deductible, they wouldn't pay a cent. And then even when they hit that deductible, you know, they paid like 70%. So, yeah. I mean, one major problem and we would have been sunk. So, I mean, that right there is obviously a pretty material impact. Yeah. Well, not to mention my, my taxes, um, you know, my taxes increased every single year. And, um, you know, I think, I think I was paying, you know, on average five to six, $7,000, um, extra in taxes. And because I own yeah. my own business, I, I was writing checks, you know, I'm writing, you know, most people don't do that. They, it's, you know, whether they get a hundred dollars taken out or $150 taken out, you know, they don't, they're not, you are not looking at their paychecks every single week or every other week that like that, you know, yeah. when you have to write a big fat check at the end of the year, it's or actually you have to do it quarterly, but when you're writing those checks, it's different. You're watching it. Yeah. yeah. And I remember this happened during our last conversation and, and I'll, I'll bring it up again here, which is, you know, I talked earlier about my dad and my dad used to drive me into high school, uh, every morning. So I went to, I lived outside of Boston, um, and went to high school in the, in the city. So it was like an hour drive. And that was where my political indoctrination began. Um, it was right at the heart of like Michael Dukakis, Massachusetts, which for those of you who may like not remember Dukakis, like it was the height of like eighties liberalism, basically it was, you know, pre welfare reform, pre Clinton tacking to the center. It was like, there was, there was an actual like left wing of the democratic party that was, that was active and, and steering the ship, so to speak. And my dad spent the entire car ride just talking about how, you know, how effectively, like the instant you started making money, the government said you didn't deserve it. And uh, I mean, just railing against the whole premise of tax and spend liberalism. And the basic gist of it was, was the dude like quite literally like built walls, built chimneys to pay his way through school. And then the instant he gets out and the instant he starts making money, somebody who didn't struggle as much as he did tells him that he has to give his money over to somebody because they're less fortunate. And his big question was like, well, where were you when I was building the chimney? You know, where, where were you before? And that really just rubbed him the wrong way. And does that, you know, I, I, obviously I know everybody's different here, but does that story resonate with you? Like when you hear folks, especially now when you hear talk about uh, raising taxes to fund X government program or Y government program, do you kind of think about your own experience and say to yourself like, well, you know, I did it and, you know, I, I struggled and I made it happen. So 
you know, why should I be, why, why should I be penalized for that? Is that, am I, am I making sense here or no? Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I totally can relate to that a million percent. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, when you've been told your whole life, you can't do it, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and we tell people all the time how they can't do it. If they can't do it without the government. They can't do it without this. They can't do this. You know, they're victims, this, they're victims, that, and they grow up like, okay, well, I just, I guess I can't do it. It's much easier to not do anything. I mean, a hundred percent. It's hard. I mean, it was, it was hard growing up. It was hard. College was very difficult for me um, because it was expensive, um, you know, and I was incurring a lot of debt. Um, yeah. I remember there were, there were people who had to buy dinner for me sometimes on Sundays because I had no money. And, um, you know, and we went to school with a lot of rich kids and I, I wasn't one of them. And, um, but I wanted to be one. I wanted to be a rich kid. Yeah. I, I like material things. I've always liked, you know, my toys, but I never had any. So, you know, that was kind of that material desire was kind of something that drove me. And I knew I was just tired of being that person. And I'm also the kind of person when someone tells me I can't do something is when I want to do it. I'll tell you what I've learned over the last 12 months. And I, and I, I, I see a lot of it in what you post and I, I see a lot of it in what a lot of people post and I hear a lot of it in, in what you're saying, which is, um, you know, what we, what we have in this country is we have a system that is structurally built for two parties, right? The, the system is structurally designed so only two major parties can exist. Um, it's because we have a, a winner-take-all system of government. So yep. if I win 45% of the votes and somebody else wins 37%, then 45% wins. Or if I win 35% of votes and the next highest wins 20%, 35% wins. Over time, that just develops into two different parties. Um, what what I think what, – what, what, and so what happens when you get that is that you cannot run to the center. You can't compete for the center of, uh, you can't compete for the political center uh, if you're going to win elections. Because Which is the biggest voting block, incidentally, exactly. right? Exactly. 100%. 100%. And so um, you can't compete for the center. And so what you have to do is you have to give very, very compelling reasons as to why somebody should vote for you. And so, um, so instead of saying, I mean, and granted there are some policies, but overall the general approach is divide, divide, divide. The general approach is how can I make you so scared of the other, the other party that you vote for me? If you are not allied, so if you are not like again, when you think of like a diehard Republican, like somebody who's somebody who is pro-life, always going to vote Republican, doesn't matter what. If you're pro-gun, always going to vote Republican, doesn't matter what. Like they have tied their ship to that, right? But for somebody like you, right? Well, they've got to figure out another way they're going to get you in, right? And same thing with me, right? Somebody like me, they've got to figure out another way to get me to vote a certain way because I'm not allied. You know, Um, and so and and so what happens is there are other issues that are thrown out there that are designed to incite like a 
a, a, a panic reaction almost, you know? And, uh, and I think the current, uh, talk around, uh, racial justice and black lives matter is one where, um, you have, uh, one side that is saying, you know, problem is, is one side feels very deeply that the problem of structural racism is very real. And they want to do what they can to, you know, they want to do what they can to solve that. Um, and then the counterweight to that is, you know, is, and, and, and I, I should add to that point. Um, these are people that aren't, you know, anti-cop. They're not anti-establishment. They don't want to, you know, defund the police. They just want you know, to make sure that, you know, uh, a black kid can go out and get Skittles and not have to worry about getting shot. You know? They're normal people. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, and I think on the flip side, you have on the Republican side of things, you have a group of people who are like, who, um, who are generally like, well, you know what? I'm pro law enforcement. I don't like what I'm seeing. Um, I don't like the lawlessness I'm seeing. I don't like, uh, you know, I, you know, effectively they're viewing it from a much different lens. Um, and, and I think the issue for me, what I look at is like, am I eating from the table that has been set for me by the two parties? Am I, and, and I've become much more disassociated from a lot of these issues that everybody's arguing about, because what I see is I see an effort for the two-party system to try and control my mind. And in reality, where I think we are as a nation is I think, I think we are at a pivotal point um, that happens once every 60 to 80 years. And what's going to happen after this is there's going to be sort of a certain structures are going to fall. Other structures are going to rise up from it. Um, but when I look at kind of what's needed for the future, um, none of these issues make the top of the list. But part of the reason I want to end the year with you is because I want to make sure that, you know, people understood how you got there. Because I feel like if I can get you, if I can get a bunch of people who you'd typically argue with on Facebook to hear how you got to where you were, I think it might change the way that they talk, you know, and hopefully vice versa. Yep. No, I, I agree. We, <laughs> we've got, uh, I've got this other, and I don't, I, uh, I think you've seen it, but uh, I've got this side thing going on with some of the college mates where oh, yeah. we have opposing opinions and we, we meet at once a week to discuss these issues. And it's a totally different thing when you're talking to somebody face to face. It's yeah. this, this remote, you know, anonymous nature of how we're communicating that is not good. I think social media, I, I have such mixed feelings about it, but if it all disappeared tomorrow, I, I, would, I don't think I would mind it at all. Yeah, I I think uh, to be frank, I think that uh, a big part of it is social media. A big part of it's the because when you look at how the media itself is rewarded in a social media environment, yeah. they're they're you know rewarded with rapid shares. They're yes. rewarded with sensationalism. Clickbait, that's what, basically. <laughs> it, that's it. That's it, and that's what guides the conversation even though there are bigger issues that have a bigger impact on your life than uh than anything being talked about 
um, you are going to focus on the most sensational and that's going to be what guides the dialogue. One of the biggest things people can start doing is really instead of kind of getting that hair trigger reaction from somebody expressing an opinion, maybe just be a little curious, you know, cause I guarantee you that it, there is somebody on the left I can pick out who's going to give me a sim, who's going to give me an equally logical story as to how they came to an entirely different conclusion. You know, and I think the sooner we start looking at each other as people who have, who are honest actors, who have reached our conclusions via honest means, um, the sooner we can get back to being an actual democracy <laughs> instead of two factions vying for supremacy, which is effectively where we are right now. Just there's the, the constitutions in the way. Yeah, or or stop hating one another. Like I, yeah. I mean, I've I def, I think I defunded my my first person last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago, ever, because I was being attacked so viciously, and they were screenshotting the things I was saying. It, it made me nervous, um, and and I, I just I've never conducted myself that way. I don't I I I I believe you get the respect that you give. And, and, you know, I give respect and I wasn't getting any, and it was just, it was flooring me. I just couldn't understand it. I don't understand why people, how people talk like that. And it's not exclusive to the, to the left or right. But I mean, I tell you, man, I've been attacked and I've had some, just some of the nastiest things said to me over the last three years. Like I think I told you half my family, three quarters of my family has defriended me because they can't, they can't talk about it. Right. And I'm never disrespectful ever. I'll ask you tough questions and I will challenge you, but I am never disrespectful and I don't call names and I never call people. I, you know, I just don't call people names. It's just not what I do. So I I think we got to get over that. Just start having a little bit of respect for one another. A couple of things I want you all to take home from this episode. Number one, If you only knew John from what he shared on social media, you'd either like everything he posted or defriend him within an hour. What you wouldn't get is what got him to that place. And from our conversation, it's clear that John struggled to pay his way through college and start his own business only to have it shut down due to the Affordable Care Act and gave him some justifiably strong feelings about the role he wants government to play in his life. Now, In another system, John might have been able to channel that discontent towards a party platform, but that's not the system we have. We have one where fear of the other party often drives most people's voting decisions rather than the promise of what a candidate can do. And that's a pattern more akin to China during the Cultural Revolution or Stalinist Russia than it is a healthy democracy. Now, number two. We often make the mistake of reducing people to what they share on social media, but that's not them. It's just something emotionally charged that hit a nerve with them, and it's designed to hit a nerve with you too. And my hope in putting out this episode is that everyone here chooses to be curious with the people you disagree with and really engage with them instead of just following that knee-jerk reaction to own them on Facebook or Twitter or whatever dumb platform they happen to be talking on. Now, John said it would help if we were all a little more respectful. I'd say you don't have to yell. See what I did there? Uh, Yeah, it's the title of the show. All right, next week, 
We're ending the year with the Data Monkey and the most specialist of special guests of all. We have the big Gino himself to join us for a year in review and yell at us in person for making his job as producer hell on earth. I hope you'll join me for the scolding. Per usual, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDH2I is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino, the snake killer, Jason Putney. Until the next, Stan Sally saying goodbye. <laughs>